and welcome to episode 97 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. Peter Lim is away. Today on the podcast, we speak via Skype with Dr. Suzanne Clausen. She is an associate professor of history at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, and an honorary research fellow in the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Johannesburg. Her research interests are in modern South Africa, the politics of reproduction and fertility control, and nationalism and sexuality. She is the author of an important new book on these very themes titled Abortion Under Apartheid, Nationalism, Sexuality, and Women's Reproductive Rights in South Africa, published just a couple of months ago by the Oxford University Press. Her previous publications include Race, Maternity, and the Politics of Birth Control in South Africa, published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2004, and she also co-edited with Michael Dawson and Catherine Gidney, Maud Graham, a Canadian girl in South Africa, a teacher's experiences in the South African War, originally published in 1905, and then the edited version published by Alberta University Press in 2015. Dr. Clausen's scholarly articles have appeared in the journal Southern African Studies, Journal of Women's History, South African Historical Journal, and Medical History. Welcome, Dr. Clausen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And can you tell us about your background and how you came to be a scholar of South Africa? Yes, uh, I became interested in South Africa after attending an international conference on youth and AIDS that was actually held in Namibia in 1994. I first became interested in the politics of reproduction and fertility when I was an undergrad, actually, in the late 1980s. Uh, and at that time, our federal government here in Canada was trying to recriminalize abortion. Just a little bit of background for non-Canadianists. Uh, in 1988, our Supreme Court uh, here made a decision that struck down the existing abortion law as unconstitutional. So we had no law on abortion uh, on the criminal code. And then the national government of the day introduced new legislation in an attempt to recriminalize it. And a national movement sprung up across the country, actually, and I joined it and was part of ultimately a successful movement uh, to keep abortion out of the criminal code. So today, uh, we don't actually have a, a federal law on abortion. It's strictly considered a medical procedure. And that was a really exciting campaign to be a part of. It taught me a lot about the politics of abortion in the Canadian context. Uh, I began to do some research on the history of abortion in Canada, and I moved on to become an AIDS activist. I sort of continued my interest in politics of reproduction and moved into AIDS activism. And uh, in the early 90s, I joined a nonprofit AIDS uh, organization in Victoria, which was a really exciting opportunity and uh, exciting time. And while on the board of that organization, I was actually selected to be the Canadian delegate to this conference, this international conference on youth and AIDS in Namibia. And I actually didn't even know where Namibia was. I knew nothing about Africa. Africa had never been on my radar uh, as a tourist, as an intellectual uh, at all. But I just absolutely fell in love with uh, the country and the people. And after this conference, I ended up hitchhiking from the up to the Caprivi Strip, and I forget how far south, and just was blown away by the warmth of the Namibian people. 
And of course, the politics of, of liberation, right, at that time were, were amazing in Southern Africa. Uh, the first uh, non-racial democratic election in South Africa was happening in 1994. Namibia had just a few years recently won freedom from South Africa as a, as a you know, it had been sort of a colony of South Africa. So it was an amazing, inspiring time as a young person interested in social justice. And frankly, as a result of that trip, I just stuck to my initial interest in the themes of history of abortion, politics of fertility, etc. But I just shifted um, from Canada to Southern Africa. And, uh, you know, it was really a decision I made without thinking much about the consequences down the road. And you do that when you're young and full of passion for something that, uh, you know, that you're involved in. Sure. And all these years later, here I am, an an Africanist. (laughs) And so you took that that, uh, personal engagement and that professional interest into your graduate studies. And your first book, book looked at race and gender and class in South African reproductive politics in the pre-apartheid. Uh, era. And in that work, you showed how various white segregationists sought to control white women's fertility in a way to kind of prop up what they were trying to think of as, as white civilization. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they seem to have largely ignored black fertility. And how much of this at the time was due to the influence of eugenics, for example? Mm. Eugenics was absolutely crucial to the politics of fertility in um, interwar era South Africa. Right from the get-go, even before Union, whites in general were absolutely afraid of the African majority. They were afraid of what they call swamping by Africans who were, of course, a much larger population and also had a uh, higher uh, birth rate. At the same time, whites were, and here's where the eugenics movement really came to the fore, whites were, middle-class whites were also very alarmed by the phenomenon of poor whiteism. Those whites who were supposedly failing to be white, they were living like Africans, meaning uh, they were very poor. In some cases, they were living with Africans and had lost their sense of whiteness. And this was a very controversial and alarming phenomenon, and eugenists who believed that racial characteristics such as unfitness uh, as whites or specifically laziness, you know, that these characteristics were determined by one's heredity and not one's environment. So they saw poor whites as biologically inferior and proof that whites were degenerating. And so they really spearheaded the birth control movement in South Africa. And they actually opened the first birth control clinic uh, in South Africa. It was in Johannesburg in February 1932 at the height of the Depression, when, of course, white poverty was worsening, was more visible, and they really did set out to get birth control in the hands of white women to, you know, assist them, quote-unquote, because they failed in their attempts to um, pass legislation mandating sterilization of the so-called unfit, but they wanted poor white women to limit the number of their children, to keep their family sizes small, and therefore not pass on their supposed... um, racial taint. And all of this was done with the eye on the prize of maintaining white supremacy. They wanted to keep, you know, this number of so-called unfit whites to a minimum and keep the white minority racially fit and and um, resilient enough to maintain white supremacy. 
this uh, very interesting take continues in this brand new book that you've published with Oxford University Press uh, titled Abortion Under Apartheid, where you carry these themes of uh, the relationship between uh, nationalism, particularly white nationalism, sexuality, and women's reproductive rights into the apartheid era. Uh, and it, how and why did the Afrikaner National Party aggressively police white women's sexuality and also their attempts in growing numbers to terminate pregnancies. Mm. Yeah, well it's it's there's some similarities here to the 1930s when we get to the apartheid era. In both cases we see the regime focused on maintaining the well-being of the white minority primarily, and in the case of the 30s we see the eugenists very much focused on biological superiority. But by the time we get to the National Party, what we see is a regime very uh, intensely focused on maintaining whites' moral superiority. And essentially, well, it's hard to remember now when we look back, I suppose, unless you lived through it. But if you, if you, you know, I was really struck by reading the parliamentary debates of the apartheid era, just how Christian the National Party considered itself, how it wrapped itself in this cloak of Christianity and continuously justified the subjugation of the black majority by claiming repeatedly, even ad nauseum, that whites were morally superior to the supposedly uncivilized blacks. And Africans in particular were repeatedly called terms like barbaric. Um, you know, in Parliament and elsewhere, whereas whites were considered and discussed as literally God's chosen people in the region, chosen by God to rule over South Africa and all those uh, who lived within it. And sexuality was really fundamentally important to performing this supposed moral superiority on, on the part of whites. So the National Party which was working hand in glove with the Dutch Reformed Church uh, in South Africa at the time, was preaching a very conservative patriarchal vision of sexuality, uh, e.g. no uh, sex before marriage, uh, monogamy, so sex with only uh, within marriage only. And the regime therefore strongly disapproved of um, teenage girls and young women that were having premarital sex. Now, by the early 70s, it was becoming very clear that, in fact, white teenage girls were having uh, sex before marriage. There were um, some very high-profile abortion trials. There were increasing numbers of white children being born out of wedlock, um, etc. So the regime saw this uh, literally as the spread of, of a kind of moral virus that it called permissiveness that was supposedly corrupting white's moral fiber. And they, they saw this all in very cold war era political terms. They saw this as, you know, an attempt by liberals uh, who were the dupes of communists to introduce debauched ways of thinking and behaving to weaken uh, white's moral fiber. And that would, they feared and believed, um, soften up whites and make them vulnerable to take over from within, from opponents of the regime, uh, and from without by communists that they were truly paranoid um, about at the time. So, so what they considered immorality and this this uh, was not focused just strictly on, on 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 white women's sexuality. They were also very concerned about recreational drug use and rock music, etc. But of course, I'm interested in in sexuality and abortion. So they did see white women's so-called promiscuity as a threat to white purity, white white's moral purity. 
Now, how did it police white women's sexuality? Well, they certainly were not interested in making abortion accessible to white women and girls because they thought that would make it easy in their terms to evade the consequences of premarital sex or uh, extramarital sex. So not only did they prevent access to safe medical abortion by passing a very retrograde law in 1975, they, in addition to that, prosecuted medical doctors who were helping white girls to have safe abortions. And they did this to scare other doctors who were sympathetic to um, terrified uh, white girls. And they also did it by um, shaming white girls and we could talk a little bit more about this, but during some of these very high-profile prosecutions of, of uh, doctors, they forced white girls that had had abortions to give testimony about those doctors and the abortions that, that they had obtained from doctors in return for immunity from prosecution. And while on the stand, the state absolutely humiliated these girls in ways that I talk about at length in the book. I really consider them like sex spectacles essentially um and well, by let's, let's let's talk if i could interrupt you sure. let's talk about these show trials you have two chapters in the book devoted to these and i found these thoroughly absorbing uh, one is the, the you called it the trial the world was watching from 1972 and then there was a slightly smaller one uh, subsequently um this is a period by the way for for those for the listeners out there when the growth in abortions went from approximately, what, 100,000 in the 1960s to 250,000 in the 1970s, what was called then a social epidemic by some. And uh, in the chapter, uh, The Trial the World is Watching, you uh, discuss two very interesting, very different men. Mm. You put them center stage. Uh, one is uh, Dirk Crichton, and the other is James Watts. And Crichton uh, was an outspoken advocate of uh, medical abortion on demand, was the son of a famous OBGYN doctor who was also a professor at the University of Cape Town. Then on the other hand, you have Watts, who was from a blue-collar background, for lack of a better term, uh, <laughs> a former firefighter, uh, and I think he was a refinery operator for Shell and Durban, who became uh, a very sought-after abortionist, and was you describe him as highly skilled and meticulous. So tell us about the circumstances of these rather extraordinary trials, the arrests and the police investigation, and, and why these are so important in terms of your argument and your book. Mm. Yes, Crichton was, um, he's still hes still with us, he's now in his early 90s, um, an amazing man. He was a very eminent doctor in the early 1970s. He, for example, was a professor of obstetrics gynecology at Natal Medical School, which meant he was also the head of the maternity ward at the King Edward VIII Hospital. And it, that was a hospital for Africans, and it was as a result of his work in that ward, he saw a lot of black women ill and dying from botched abortion. So he certainly was exposed to the, the epidemic of abortion in that way. And at the same time, because he was, as you say, a very outspoken advocate of abortion on demand, he was also attracting white teenagers and young women from not just Durban, from, but from other cities as well, to come to him and beg him for, for help, pregnant girls that wanted help getting abortions. Now, because he was so outspoken, so important and respected, 
the police officer that I spoke to that in, that led the investigation that ultimately brought him down, in his recollection, he believes that Crichton also was speaking out about South Africa's antiquated position on abortion when he was traveling, that he gave some kind of talk in, in the UK. And as a result of all this, the regime really targeted him and wanted him arrested and essentially destroyed in, his, in professional terms. And um, I did interview the police officer, a man named Dan Matea, who was hired uh, specifically to do this, to gather whatever evidence was necessary with essentially unlimited resources to bring Crichton to book. And Matea reviewed dozens of cases um, in the various hospitals that Crichton had worked in, interviewed hundreds of girls and women from around South Africa. And in the process of that investigation was led to a man named James Watts, who you described. And as it turned out, as Matea uh, put the pieces together, what was happening was this. Crichton, who knew better than anyone that it was illegal to start a miscarriage, to basically to begin an abortion, except if a woman's life was in danger. This was the one legal ground for obtaining an abortion at the time. But one couldn't just start uh, an abortion because a woman wanted to end a pregnancy. That part was illegal. However, if a girl or if a woman arrived at a hospital or a clinic already miscarrying, in other words, already bleeding, a doctor could complete the abortion legally, uh, what was called at the time perform a DNC, a dilate and curatage. So essentially clean out the contents of the uterus and uh, provide antibiotics and ensure that the abortion ends safely. So what happened was Crichton uh, was alerted to the existence of James Watts by nurses who were realizing over months and months of patterns of women showing up, um, miscarrying at hospitals, that there was this abortionist named Watts whose patients essentially all um, evaded infection, that he was performing abortions very, very safely. And Crichton was very impressed with this fact that none of Watts's patients um, developed infection. Watts sterilized his equipment as we discovered um, during the trial. He shaved girls' and women's pubic hair. He took really careful steps to avoid infection and to perform abortions safely. So Crichton thought very naively that he could avoid trouble with the law if he would first send women to Watts to start the abortions. And Watts, who very quickly learned that essentially Crichton was referring women and teenagers to him, he agreed to start those abortions with the understanding that the girls would return to Crichton for the DNC and to have the abortion completed safely, which would, of course, ensure the girl, uh, the girl or women was fine, but also to protect Watts from any trouble. And they performed together abortions on really, we don't even know how many women, but ultimately they were charged for together performing abortions on dozens of white girls, uh, white teenagers and young women, all unmarried, all white. And that was this amazing trial that I write about in one of the chapters, as you say. And um, I found that trial so important in so many ways. First of all, using it is an opportunity to bring down a very important doctor, which put the fear of God into other white doctors, as I mentioned. This process of humiliating the white girls put on the stand was very painful to read in the trial transcripts, sexually humiliating them to full galleries of people there watching and, and really like watching a soap opera. And so, of course, that would put the fear of God. Uh, all of this was reported, by the way, by 
I don't know how many newspapers at the time. And so, of course, girls and women reading about this would also be desperately afraid of being caught um, having had abortions. And I think another aspect that, that I find really interesting and significant about this trial that I talk about is that not all, you know, untrained abortionists were... Um, you know, we're frightening or deadly at all. There's this image that so-called backstreet abortionists are all, um, you know, essentially uh, to be feared and ultimately could kill you. And of course, in some cases, this was true. We have many examples of, of untrained abortionists performing dangerous abortions, um, not sterilizing equipment, inserting objects that would, you know, ultimately lead to perforation and or infection and all kinds of physical problems and in worst case scenarios, death. How However, there were obviously people like James Watts, and I don't know how many other James Wattses were out there, but um, self-taught abortionists who took their profession, as he saw it, um, in extremely seriously and provided humane, compassionate, very caring treatments. And in those cases, girls were successful and uh, not just lived to tell the tale, but were didn't suffer injury. So that was a very amazing story to tell. Um, it was watched at the time, you know, by everyone. In, well, they didn't have television yet in South Africa, but it was, as I say, a very, it was a scandal essentially. So it attracted a lot of attention at the time. But then just to, you know, make sure that Crichton was brought down because he was found guilty. Both men were found guilty and James Watts did serve prison time. Uh, the state decided to once again prosecute Crichton, this time with another medical doctor, Dr. Anjini Maharaj, who, like with Crichton and Watts, were performing these, these two-step abortions. And so there's yet another trial a few months later, more young men, young women, and in some cases their boyfriends are put on the stand. Some of them just reduced to emotional messes on the stand because of the bullying um, that they were subjected to. All of which, again, was reported um, in the press. And once again, the doctors, both in this time, both medical doctors were again found guilty. And both doctors were ultimately struck off the medical role. And that put an end to Crichton's very impressive research career. The, uh, the stories you tell are, are really quite gripping. And I think so much of that has to do with the sources that you were able to get to. And I kept thinking when I was reading the book of uh, how much work you put into this, given that you were documenting uh, and interpreting what was the history of an illegal and largely clandestine activity. So one that by definition was unlikely to yield uh, a rich documentary record. So can you tell us about how you went uh, about the research, the, the sources, the, the government documents, the trial transcripts and the correspondence, the personal correspondence, the newspapers, the oral interviews with the doctors and, and police investigators and the others? Uh, what kind of surprising discoveries did you make? Mm. Well, you're absolutely right, Peter. I mean, it's it is difficult to write about a practice like abortion in societies like South Africa where it was criminalized because of course everyone involved, specifically pregnant women and those men and women trying to terminate those pregnancies, you know, they're desperate to hide their actions, right? So, essentially an illegal practice like clandestine abortion only became visible when the authorities got involved, when the authorities exposed it. So that would be, for example, in cases where uh, a woman died. 
and that would lead to a prosecution of a, of a clandestine abortionist, which would be covered in the press. So that would give me uh, some leads to follow. Or in the case of medical doctors like Crichton or uh, Maharaj, those doctors performing illegal abortions would be discovered by authorities uh, if others, including other doctors actually, uh, and nurses would inform on them to authorities that they were providing illegal abortions. So then we would have some very high profile prosecutions of doctors like we just discussed, and that would lead to a goldmine of, of newspaper coverage, which gave me, you know, a lot to work with. Or when activists began began challenging the sexist laws, denying women access to safe abortion. And this also happened in South Africa during apartheid, when we had deaths of girls and therefore trials of abortionists. We had doctors being prosecuted and we had women's group forming starting in 1971 to try to liberalize the existing law. And those groups, in particular, the Abortion Reform Action Group that uh, formed in Durban, that group in 1972, they worked dog to drum up publicity about clandestine abortion and were doing research to reveal the damage being done by denying women safe abortion. So they were producing material, talking to the press, um, even uh, for many years uh, distributing newsletters. So that was also a very important resource. Um, they've ultimately donated their papers to a couple of archives in South Africa. But in addition to statistics, I found to get at the everyday experience of girls and women, it, it did involve needing to be a little, you know, even more creative. Uh, so I turned to novels written by some wonderful writers. Uh, and when I found stories of abortions, uh, in a couple of cases, as you may have noticed in the book, I did contact the authors who confirmed that they based their fictional accounts of abortions on stories of, of uh, friends or acquaintances. I also turned to autobiographies, like Miriam McCabe describes how terrified she was when she was... Uh, 17, found she was pregnant in 1949, I believe, and talked about how many of her friends were falling pregnant and how girls she knew were dying because of unsafe abortion. So there were novels, there were autobiographies, and you have to remember, this project took me 10 years, so all along the way, I'm talking to people, I'm phoning people. I found James Watts by calling him up. Um, the great Helen Suzman, who's now passed away, was the one member of parliament who for years was fighting to liberalize abortion law in South Africa and constantly forcing the government to put on the record uh, statistics on abortion. She was amazing, and I found her number by Googling her uh, when I was in South Africa and phoned her up and she just an happened to answer the phone. I told her who I was and literally she invited me over the next day to do an interview about her years of, of work on, on abortion, which was phenomenal. So talking to one person, of course, would lead to stories uh, of events and people that I hadn't known about, which would lead me to making more phone calls and the kind of snowball effect um, as I just, frankly, I, at some point I actually had to stop. There's so much more to be done. And I hope this is only the first of many books on this history because I just uh, had to wrap it up and, and, and collate the material that I was gathering. There's so much there 
Yeah. Well, some some of the stories that, that remain to be told, there are so many, as you pointed out, and so many of the books that need to be written, certainly have to tackle uh, black South African women's mm. history uh, of abortion, because your excellent work sheds so much light on these everyday lives and struggles of, of mainly white, uh, middle-class women. And yet, you point out that black women far outnumbered white women in terminating pregnancies. So what can be said, uh, or what will be said on, on this topic? Mm, it's a really, really good point. And, you know, by far the greatest number of, um, of girls and women damaged by the denial of safe abortion during apartheid were, were black girls and women. And that's why I do start the book with chapter one, uh, part one, essentially, of chapter one, uh, you know, um, highlighting and forefronting um, black girls and women's experience. However, it is much, much more difficult to get at uh, the day-to-day -day reality of what life was like for those girls and women for reasons that we've already discussed. Namely, the regime was only interested in abortion as insofar as it related to whites. They were, they really couldn't couldn't care less about the effect of clandestine abortion on black girls and women's lives. They were just allowed to show up to emergency, receive care or not. Um, but the, you know, the efforts that the state made to shut down abortion related to whites only. The doctors they put on the stand um, and prosecuted were doctors performing abortions on white girls only. And for the most part, the media was only covering examples, um, you know, white girls' plight. They would, I came across stories in newspapers, which were very helpful, but again, focused on whites, about girls having to go to London to get safe abortions, or um, some very widely covered stories like the so-called abortion girl of 1980, a young woman who'd been raped and was desperate to procure an abortion and got caught up in this surreal Kafkaesque, you know, legal mess, essentially, which I won't go into that one. It's so complicated, but it became another cause celeb for feminists who were um, trying to liberalize abortion law. Uh, yeah, so another infuriating story, but she was white. So really the media, the courts, and the medical profession, a lot of the drama around abortion uh, related to whites only. There were definitely doctors who were talking about the fact that it was, you know, an epidemic in the black community. Crichton was one who worked at the King Edward. One his uh, student, Sam Mahagong, who went on to become the first African gynecologist in South Africa, who studied at Natal Medical School. He also, you know, tried to make the issue of unsafe abortion in black communities very visible. Uh, Arag, who was working very hard to document the incidence of clandestine abortion, just by getting those numbers was making it very clear and unrefutable that it was overwhelmingly a black problem in terms of numbers. But yeah, you weren't getting those sort of close, personalized stories, I guess, of black girls the way you were of white girls. And to, to do justice on that front, frankly, is, is going to take oral history methodology. And we need uh, future feminist historians to do that because there isn't going to be the convenience of Supreme Court trial transcripts of doctors who were performing abortions on black girls that will give us the same kind of details that, that we've been talking about so far in relation to, to white girls. But, you know, since my book came out and um, I had a book launch at the University of Johannesburg last November and was interviewed while I was in South Africa by a number of 
African women journalists. And in the course of those interviews, they were telling me stories about what it was like to grow up. One journalist was part of the Soweto uprising. She was 16 at the time, and she herself had uh, had gotten pregnant and you know, as a teenager and ha- was shocked by that because she didn't actually know how one got pregnant, if you could believe it. A lot of sexual activity going on without girls and even boys knowing what sex can lead to. And this journalist knew of other African girls who did die of botched abortion. So, in fact, I don't think it would be that difficult to put faces on black girls and women that suffered the way white girls and women did. It's just, it's a, it's another, it's another project and it's, it requires intense oral history methodology, uh, I think. Uh, Today, of course, the rights to reproductive health are enshrined in South Africa's very progressive constitution, but South Africans seem split over abortion rights. And this brings out some of the contradictions, of course, of, of the new South Africa, if you want to call it that. So what does the future hold for women's access to abortion in South Africa from your perspective, having studied it so closely as a historian? And how does South Africa compare with the situation internationally, including, uh, for example, the United States? Well, that... That is a really important question, actually, because in a sense, the story of clandestine abortion, it's its not over by any means in South Africa. Um, I mean, after the demise of apartheid and the election of the ANC, we saw some tremendous gains for, for women. Um, the 1996 Constitution, for example, guarantees women's right to security in and control over their bodies. And also in 1996, the ANC passed uh, an incredibly progressive abortion law that essentially makes abortion today available on demand up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. And these were huge victories for feminists uh, within the ANC Women's League and and um, and within civil society who really seized the moment and worked together strategically to, politi- you know, during the political transition, 90, 1990 to 1994. 93-94, and they succeeded in forefronting women's issues and ultimately in protecting women's reproductive rights in law. And these were our tremendous victories. They've been written about widely, and you know the the 1996 law has been hailed globally as a huge victory uh, for women by um, women's health advocates around the world, and and rightfully so. However unsafe abortion continues in South Africa today. And anyone who's been to downtown Durban or Cape Town or taken the train in Cape Town, for example, will see the posters and the stickers advertising uh, illegal abortion services. I mean, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And essentially, a girl or woman can obtain a a clandestine abortion for about $20 and and same-day service, frankly, uh, today. So that shows us that in addition to change in the form of these incredible, you know, gains in the constitution and and in the law on abortion, we still have continuity. We still have a thriving clandestine abortion industry. And, you know, why is that? Um, well, essentially it's because, as you say, there is actually still widespread popular opposition to uh, abortion on demand in South Africa. Abortion continues to be highly stigmatized in South Africa today. Stigmatization that was you know, developed and, and festered and hardened during the colonial segregation and apartheid eras, that lives on today, unfortunately. And this 
you know, we see the face of stigmatization in so many uh, ways in South Africa. We see healthcare providers, for example, opting out. Um, in the law that was passed in 96, I should tell you, there is a conscience clause. So healthcare providers do not have to participate in providing abortions if they, if they find that their religious beliefs um, won't allow them to do so. And many healthcare professionals do opt out. And because those trained to provide abortions uh, won't, we actually have a problem. We have a situation today where only about 40% of designated hospital and clinics are providing surgical abortion. Less than half of the hospital and clinics designated as sites to perform abortions are doing so. And at the same time, what we see is in places where abortions are are being provided, there is too often, you know, really low quality care. You know, we see, you know, research shows us that um, women, especially uh, teenagers, also sex workers, foreign um, women, uh, you know, different groups, but especially teenage girls arriving to, at hospitals or clinics wanting abortions, they are too often treated really poorly, even, frankly, abused by um, nurses. Um, even hospital cleaning staff have been documented to voice their opposition um, out loud and, and, and berate uh, girls about the need for abortion. And I recall actually being in Durban a few years ago and watching an undercover investigative report where a young African girl, she I think she was about 15, was sent into a hospital with a hidden camera asking for help in, in, in obtaining an abortion. And the way she's publicly berated for essentially being promiscuous by a nurse was really painful to watch and, and, and very um, disturbing. So, of course, given this situation, uh, in addition to the fact that research tells us that a lot of people don't even know yet that abortion is legal in South Africa. So this combination of ignorance and fear, frankly, of um, obtaining an abortion in a public service is driving a lot of people, a lot of women to the clandestine industry uh, still. And beyond these political reasons, essentially, we of course also see, a, just generally speaking, a healthcare system that's pushed to the breaking point, not least because of you know, the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic. So yeah, there's problems of low quality care, where it's even being offered. And I suppose what's also very alarming is even though research tells us that opposition to abortion, you know, it exists, it actually all it always has. This isn't anything new. South Africa is essentially quite a conservative country uh, when it comes to abortion uh, and ideas about abortion on demand. What has changed is we're seeing that within the ANC, there's, there's a decline in political will to defend women's reproductive rights. Um, this is a change that's very alarming to women's uh, health advocates. Now, how does this all compare internationally? Well, it's the situation's mixed. On the one hand, that 1996 law on abortion that I talked about is stellar. It is outstanding in a positive sense. So South Africa is is looked to for an example of a very progressive abortion law. But on the ground, what we see is stigmatization that is very, very widespread, like it is elsewhere in Africa and in other regions of the world. Um, Latin America in particular uh, comes to mind. So in, in this sense, South Africa isn't unique at all. We're, we're as women reproductive justice fighters um, are encountering this problem, you know, in countries around the world. But, you know, just to end this on an up note, the future is by no means, um, it's not a hopeless 
picture at all because there there's there are really encouraging um, things happening. Um, for example, within South Africa, there are uh, amazing groups coming to the fore. Um, essentially, there's a growing movement for reproductive justice, which means that we're seeing women's health advocates moving beyond focusing on legal frameworks, kind of narrow questions of legality and the legality of, of, of abortion to a much more radical agenda that's trying to fuse reproductive rights to broader uh, struggles for social justice, which includes tackling poverty in particular, and of course, widespread sexism. And in a country like South Africa, with a very high rate of violence against women, um, you know, this is an essential shift. And so I'm very excited to see groups like, for example, the End Abortion Stigma Initiative, or EASY as the acronym form, uh, that's that's uh, came into existence last year, that's really going to tackle questions of stigma head on. Uh, within the ANC, we're even seeing some really interesting, exciting moves uh, being made, for example, by the Minister of Social Development, Bedibile Dlamini, who uh, last year affirmed that um, South Africa needs to protect the access to safe abortion services. Dlamini says that abortion services is essential to the transformation of society that enables the complete emancipation of women, quote-unquote, which is very exciting and inspiring to activists. Um, and in fact, um, Peter, I don't know if you followed this, but just last week, Dlamini really made waves in South Africa by writing an open letter to men that was published in the Daily Maverick, where she really challenged um, men's sense of entitlement uh, in the bedroom, in the kitchen, and in politics and political discourse and business. So, so if she's the future of the ANC, that's very, very exciting. And then just last week as well, the African Commission on Human and People's Rights launched a campaign for the decriminalization of abortion in Africa. This was a totally, you know, this was a wonderful surprise to to those of us working on um, destigmatization of abortion. The commission released a, a press release just a week ago saying that the uh, commission has done this in order to bring attention to unsafe abortion, which poses a serious threat to women's and girls' rights to sexual and reproductive health. So this is incredibly exciting news. And it, it's actually starting to look like an exciting time to be a, a fighter for reproductive justice in South Africa in particular, but Africa in general as well. Well, that's a, a good note to uh, end our conversation uh, on. And thank you so much for uh, writing this history because these uh, contemporary struggles uh, need to be aware of, of this uh, past, both the, the tragedy in it, but also, as you pointed out, the, the, the victories that have been won. Mm -hmm. And so thank you very much, uh, Dr. Suzanne Clausen, for speaking with uh, Africa Past and Present. Oh, it was my pleasure, Peter. Thanks again for inviting me. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.